Welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. And today you're going to hear me talk to Sarah Schoenfeld. She is an editor at HarperCollins. Um, she started her publishing career at Penguin Random House, and she works on picture books all the way up to teen books. She's a summa cum laude Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the Ivy League School, University of Pennsylvania, but she's also a writer herself. And so she understands being an editor from both sides of the table, editing people's work and being edited and being agented and being pitched by agents. You know what helps you understand things? Eating Abe's muffins. That will help you understand the world. They are allergen-free, they taste great, they come in lots of flavors, um, and they even have brownies. They're so good. Or do you like this podcast? Subscribe. Do you have things you want to tell us? Go to isthatreallylegal.com. There is a place to send fantastic or sad comments to me, and then uh, I will interact with you. Um, we're getting close to the year anniversary of this podcast, and I want to remind everybody to feel free to send me questions, comments, talk to me about how the year has been for you, and what's the year been like listening to this podcast. But right now, relax, sit back, and enjoy my interview with writer, editor, and lovely person, Sarah Schoenfeld. Sarah Schoenfeld, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Um, you and I know each other really just from Twitter. I don't yeah. even know if you know me. I know you, but um, we do follow <laughs> each other. But you're pretty popular for someone. Uh, let's just put it this way. You haven't been around a long time. Uh, from my point of view, you're young and you've accomplished a tremendous amount. And that's what drew me to having you on this podcast. So I'm just oh, going to well, thank you. I'm going to dig right in for people who don't know you. Um, first of all, where are you from originally? I grew up a little bit all over the place. Um, I always say Connecticut, Ohio, and Pennsylvania are the top three. But my family's actually out in California now. So <laughs> how, how did that happen? Is someone in the army or something? No, nothing, nothing cool. My dad's a doctor. He just moves a lot. Um, and so ah. I got to experience a little bit of everything growing up. So I'm the, I'm the girl who always loves stories about people moving and will show up and say, hey, that's exactly what it feels like to be the new girl. Wow. You were probably the new girl a lot. Yes, I was. <laughs> um, and I would guess that as a result, you threw yourself into books. <laughs> I did. Yeah. I mean, it's a really easy way to have built in friends, not only by saying, you know, hey, I love this book, but also the characters as nerdy as that is to say. Well, no, I mean, look, uh, most of the people I interview and myself included were nerds. I mean, I was not <laughs> a quarterback. My high school was like a state champ uh, in football oh, wow. and I lettered in cello. So that will <laughs> tell you I was an all state cellist in New York. So that gives you a sense of where I'm coming from. Um, but you ultimately decided to go to college at an Ivy League school that I'm very familiar with, not because I went there, but I drove by it every day for like seven or eight years. And that's the University of Pennsylvania, not to be confused mm -hmm. with Penn State, boys and girls, very different. <laughs> um, both lovely. Still a great school. Right. But U of P, which 
by the way, for those listening, has an awesome radio station. Um, but what drew you to go to U of P? Well, I, you know, was looking at schools on the East Coast because that's where I really felt was home. And my mom actually went there. So she dragged me out there for a few visits and I just fell in love with the campus. If you've ever been on campus, it has a beautiful combination of city and also lovely greenery. Um, There's a really beautiful quad and I'm in love with Locust Walk, you know, give me a a good cobblestone path with some trees. Um, And I just, I loved the experience of visiting. And when I was an undergrad, I also got to work at the school paper, which was a huge plus. Uh, The Daily Pennsylvanian is an amazing newspaper and getting that on hand editorial and writing experience just really pushed me and challenged me and got me so excited about writing and editing. Well, I will say that having driven by the University of Pennsylvania a ton, what I find so interesting about that school is exactly like you said, you know, uh, you drive out on Walnut, you drive in on Chestnut, if you're Philadelphian people. And I lived in the West mm-hmm. Philly, Overbrook area for a long time. And um, the, it is a very city campus with some very modern buildings from like very close to the river, the Schuylkill River. Uh, look it up. No one can spell it. Um, but uh, also known as part of the Schuylkill Expressway there, which nobody wants to be on. But um, what's interesting is you can see some really modern buildings and you see some beautiful old buildings. It is a blend. It's, it's not New York University, which is all modern buildings, um, or Union College, where I went in Schenectady, which is all old stuff from like the 1800s and ivy, mm. ivy-covered walls. It's both and mm-hmm. neither. So I think that's really interesting, but also because it's the University of Pennsylvania, it has some outstanding graduate schools as well, including, but not limited to, a great law school, a great journalism school, of course, the Wharton School of Business. So Mm -hmm. you're you're surrounded by, well, let's face it, a lot of smart and driven people. So you were, would you, did you feel like, ah, after all this wandering, I am home? I mean, yeah, I immediately found a really great core group of friends, which I moved a lot. I changed friend groups a lot. And it was nice to finally find, you know, I'm still very close with uh, a lot of these girls and, you know, not just women, but um, it was such an amazing group of people, especially in my dorm and my roommate um, and finding those people who we could sit and talk about books all day. And it finally felt like, you know, finding a family. Oh, that's awesome. You thrived there because I've looked at your bio. Uh, (laughs) You graduated summa cum laude, which for people who don't know, is hard to do anywhere. Um, It's really hard to do at an Ivy League or an UP. But you also are one of like maybe three people I know in real life who have a Phi Beta Kappa key. So, um, you know, one of the things that, one of the reasons I have this podcast is I wanted to give voices to people who don't usually get heard or acknowledged. And women are at the top of that list. I'm not a woman, so I'm not going to pretend that I even know. I just have an inkling. You know, I'm married. I have lots of women friends. And I read and I look at the television and I've lived almost 60 years. So I really want to have smart, brilliant, accomplished women like you on the show. A Phi Beta Kappa key is a big deal. Can you explain to the audience what it is, how you get it, what it means? Well, you know, Phi Beta Kappa was kind of a surprise for me. I was I was just sort of doing my thing um, and they reached out to me and sort of 
you know, inducted me into that, which was incredible. My grandma is still very proud. Um, but it was such a great experience to sort of feel like I was joining this official organization of people who were so incredibly smart and talented. Um, and I know you mentioned sort of speaking for women and uplifting women's voices. And another thing I really got to enjoy as an undergraduate was I was part of a sorority. Um, I was part of Zeta Tau Alpha, which was also incredible to, to be able to network and talk to like-minded women about our accomplishments and sit in a space where, you know, we could speak freely and share our triumphs and also our shortfalls and our struggles and really just be open about it. So I was so grateful for all of those organizations at Penn and the ability to sort of feel like I had found not just recognition, but also so many other talented and incredible people and women who could support me and really watch out for me. So ju just so I don't leave people hanging, Phi Beta Kappa is a society. Um, and those are obviously three Greek letters. Um, having been in a fraternity, I can say the Greek alphabet like three times backwards while holding a lit <laughs> match. Um, that's a whole other conversation. But, um, and also I took a year of ancient Greek, but uh, mm -hmm. undergrad, yeah, it's, I know how to say things that nobody needs to hear in ancient Greek. But, um, <laughs> Like you said, this is a society that is a academic society, correct? Mm -hmm. The yes. And so um, you have to have achieved tremendously to be inducted. I'm noticing you're a little shy about it, and I don't want to be like somebody's <laughs> you know, father pushing them into the spotlight here. But how many people get Phi Beta Kappa keys every year at the University of Pennsylvania? You know, I don't know off the top of my head. I... I remember the the ceremony was quite small, um, and you know it was it was a thrill to be included. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm sorry I don't have the number off the top of my head. <laughs> you are charmingly uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Humble. Uh, I to where obviously I have trouble finding that word because I do not possess <laughs> the charm or the humility. Um, you went on from the academic experience experience. Was your first job at what I like to call Random Penguin, what they call Penguin Randoms? Yeah, so I had a few internships, and I, I really wanted to be careful about how I progressed my career from, I had been thinking more journalism, and I had such a strong and wonderful experience at the paper that I, I wanted to try that out. So I did a few internships, and I, I just found myself struggling with the short timeline and the, the shorter word count. I really, I kept wanting to turn in longer and longer pieces and work on them for longer you know for the daily pennsylvania day it truly is a daily paper and you are working maybe three hours to turn around a story and by the way you call it a paper you call it a paper but wasn't it ultimately a website when you were there when i was there it was a still still physical uh we, oh, okay. i still have some of those copies it was a lot of fun um but yeah cool. it has it has since transitioned and you know it's incredible that they were able to do that and, and hand that out. It was it was such a thrill to see my name in print. Um, but yeah, and after that, I, I worked at a few. Uh, I, well, I worked at a magazine uh, as an intern, and that was amazing. Over at Can Scholastic. you tell us? Was yeah, Scholastic was, magazine? 
uh, junior scholastic. So it that was really formative because it was my first time writing for children and looking at, you know, what, what kids care about and how they develop and what topics interest them. And I got to speak to a lot of, you know, I, I'm so grateful that you're, you're sort of praising me for my accomplishments, but speaking to a seven-year-old who's met the president, you know, really puts my life into perspective. Uh, so that was humbling uh, and really enjoyable to, to speak to these incredible children who are, you know, even younger than I am and the next generation who's going to really take us somewhere amazing. Um, well, so that I, was really. I, I'm, I don't know who said it and I'm butchering it, I'm sure, but we're all going to meet people who can teach us things. And there's all, no matter what we accomplish, there's always someone at the next level. Um, so I, I think that's a valuable thing to learn as early as possible. Some of us never learn mm -hmm. it. I think I learned it a little later in life, but, um, and it's one of the things I love about the podcast is meeting people like you. Um, I oh, always you. walk away feeling smarter. Um, <laughs> also kids, there's a great Zen expression, comparison kills, you know, you're doing your life. It's not, you're not supposed to be the other person. So comparison is just, it is the thief of joy, I believe is the actual quote from some Zen master. Anyway, back to you. Um, so, uh, so you did Scholastic Junior as an intern. Um, what was next? Then I ended up at uh, the Penguin side of Penguin Random House, which was, I was so happy to be there. And it was an amazing job to start out. Um, I loved it so much. I met so many very talented people and had the pleasure of working on a lot of different series um, and licenses and brands that are really central to penguin um I was is there at, anything you can share sure yeah so i started off at what was then grosset and dunlap and while i was there it underwent a rebrand and became penguin workshop um and it was you know i touched so many different projects i started off uh working with beatrix potter so you know not they, literally they <laughs> she's, she's unfortunately she's no longer with us um but, yeah, but for people who don't know beatrix potter um was is that the Peter Rabbit series it's or the Peter Rabbit? Okay, yeah, right. I mean that's and, classic uh, joke, children's literature, literally, right? It really is, and and her story is so inspiring because she was originally turned down by all these publishers, and I I love these kind of self published, and <laughs> I, I love these stories of people who are turned down. I mean, it's hard to talk about J.K. Rowling because of some political issues. Um, yeah. So I'm not gonna. That's a whole. We may or may not go there, but um, I, I will say the Beatles are were formative in my life. Uh, I'm that guy. I grew up in the 60s. And when you when you read the rejection letters that their management got from all these major labels, you know, and, yeah. and it's just you got to remember, like, you know, all you need is one. Yes. So she got a yes. Eventually. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, nice. uh, so, um, so what's it, you know, I, I remember being, <laughs> sorry, I grew up on Long Island, but when you come into the city to work, and for those of you who don't know what I mean, Manhattan, well, I don't know what anybody else thinks, but growing up on Long Island, Manhattan was like the Emerald City for me. It was the magical yeah. place. You would get out of the crammed subway or Long Island Railroad or Jersey Transit or wherever you were coming from, you'd come up steps or escalators and then you'd be in Manhattan with its hustle mm -hmm. and bustle and cabs and buses and people dressed all kinds of ways. And 
and just go into one of these monolithic giant buildings where, mm -hmm. and you're like, am I in a movie? Am I on a TV show? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, you know, it wasn't always glamorous to be sure. But it, there, it is incredibly exciting. Was that your experience too? Because that was my experience. Oh, definitely. I mean, there were so many moments where I had, you know, shock for my own life that I was living and, and so thrilled with myself for having made it, you know, uh, you know, I kind of glossed over the internships and the, you know, I did work at Barnes and Noble for a time and, and really did focus on applying. And it wasn't as quick as my, you know, my Wharton friends who, who, did that on-campus recruiting and went straight into a job, there was a period of almost a year where I was interning and, you know, working part-time jobs and trying to really make it. And that first day of work, I just, there were all these very emotional moments and I was so thrilled to be there. And I'm still so happy that I, I got to make it, you know, I had these incredible people and some incredibly strong women who really lifted me up and, and got me that position, gave me a, a chance and, and taught me because editorial is so much of an apprenticeship. You're really learning while doing. And I had some incredible managers. Uh, I worked with Bonnie Bader when I started off and Jane O'Connor, who's such a powerhouse in the industry and really taught me everything I know about picture books um, and nonfiction as well, because she's the creator of Who HQ and so knowledgeable and helpful and generous with her time. And to be there, to be at the time, you know, it was in Hudson Square and it was this beautiful old office building and surrounded by these titans in the industry and, and having, you know, a cup of coffee with them and talking about the bestseller that they wrote on a weekend was just so thrilling. You know, you reminded me um, that I need to ask another person on here who's a friend of mine from theater, but is a publisher. I don't know if you know Yolanda Scott. She's in the Boston area and she works at Charles Bridge Publishing, which is one of your competitors um, mm. in the Boston area. I just mentioned it because even the competitors, especially um, in areas like picture books, have affection for each other. There seems to be a real love of that. I want to back up for a second. Barnes and Noble, I know it, it is not as glamorous to work at a Barnes and Noble, <laughs> but I will tell you, um, when I worked for a best-selling author managing her and we did a ton of in-store signings, which really don't even exist anymore, but literally all over the country, um, especially in Barnes and Noble and a couple of places that don't exist anymore, you really get to know it's it's like the front lines of literature. It's the it front is. where you people come in and they want the good thing. And mm -hmm. if you can't help them find the good thing, you're a little sad. Um, also, <laughs> right. And it's also where booksellers with all their brilliance, and I mean, editorial people like publishers, however great they do in putting that book together, they get a great author, they get a great raw piece of material, they edit it to what they believe is perfection. They spend weeks trying to, hopefully more than that, but weeks trying to figure out what the color of the cover should be, what should be on the cover, what's, yeah. should we put it out as a trade paperback or will it be mass market or, you know, we're, and then it goes on the shelf. Are we going to pay extra money to have it on a table? Are we going to have it be on an end cap? Like, and then do people just walk by it completely unaware of the billions of hours from the moment it was an idea in an author's mind to the last meeting of editorial. Like it's just, it can be exhilarating and it can be so disappointing. And it's a really, I think it's a valuable lesson for someone like you to understand 
what the consumer does in a bookstore. And then, of course, now with less bookstores, what does the consumer do with the online experience? Have you seen that transition for yourself as a publishing publishing professional? Definitely. I mean, we have so many conversations. We'll love a cover and say, what does this look like in thumbnail? Because people aren't looking at the real life-size cover anymore. They're, they're seeing it maybe an inch by an inch. What does it look like? How do you grab someone's attention? What keywords can you put in the title so that it'll pop up? Uh, I remember back at Penguin when I was working on, I, I did Mad Libs for a time. I, I did a little bit of everything. Um, but, you know, what do you title a Christmas Mad Libs so people will pick it up? And the answer was you put stocking stuffer in the title because that's what people are looking for. Um uh. And that's what it is. That's such a great stocking mm-hmm. stuffer, by the way. And and no one should crap on Mad Libs. Uh, all of us have had hours of ridiculous fun playing G-rated to X-rated Mad Libs. And either <laughs> well, that's com- the joy, right? Right, and completely sober or completely inebriated. Like that Mad Libs mm-hmm. sort of transcends age levels and heat heat levels, as we'd say in the Romans. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I one of the things I've learned working in publishing is everyone thinks they can write a picture book. And I, I don't disagree that everyone has a story inside of them, but getting it on the page is a challenge. And I think also everyone thinks they can write a Mad Libs, but there's an amazing amount of talent that goes into those. And I tried my hand at writing one. It was a, a fun experience because I ended up writing a licensed Mad Lib and ended up Oh, awesome. In a studio in California. And, you know, I thought it was going to be an underground bunker. It was just an office building, uh, signing all these NDAs. Uh, and that was a fun experience. But the authors we worked with uh, for the Mad Libs team were also incredibly talented and had such an eye for how do you make the funniest moment? How do you build a joke when someone else is writing the punchline, which is amazingly difficult, but when done right, such a good time. Yeah, you know, I, I've spoken to a lot of writers. People can go, by the way, to isthatreallylegal.com and literally see the almost year's worth of interviews that have happened so far. And um, one of the people is a, a, actually more than a, I don't remember how many erotica people I've spoken to, a couple. And um, people think they can just write erotica because they've had an erotic experience. And that is not... Not at all. You know, people think they're funny at a party so they can be a stand-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been a stand-up. It is not easy. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think that it's interesting. We could pivot to a little bit of politics. I don't, I don't want to do that to you, but just a hint of it that we seem to be in an age where people, either the Internet or something has led people to believe that experts aren't important or expertise isn't important, or certain levels of education are not important. And I just cannot tell people enough that that's just wrong. I don't know how that happens. Don't do your own dentistry. Get the vaccine. You know, like, I don't understand. Are you seeing this too in publishing uh, that people throw things at you and you're like, I I don't know how approachable you are from authors who aren't agented. And we should talk about that too. But do you see people coming at you with stuff that's just not ready and they have no idea how the business works or you shield it sure, from that? Yeah. So I, I also freelance at a, uh, outside of my day job. So I, I see a lot of different works at different levels. And I think my biggest takeaway is publishing is about doing the work. 
when you write a book, you're not just going to sit down, write it once and read it once. You're going to rewrite it. You're going to edit it. You're going to read it, you know, 10 times, 20 times. And I think a lot of people just haven't, haven't done the research and haven't done the work yet. I think anyone can become an author. If you do the research, you do the reading, you do the work. I, I always say that being an author is a little bit like being a telepath. You're taking something from inside your brain and putting it inside someone else's, but it's the process of doing that that takes the skill and the practice and the learning. And I don't think everyone needs to go to a college and study creative writing to be an author. I don't think you need an MFA. I think what you need to have is passion, but also grit. I think there's a, a lot of grit in writing. And are you I not about to be arrested, are you? I just want to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is the joy of working from home in, in the city. There's just there's just constant sirens. Um, I'm not I'm not gonna ask a specific address, <laughs> but what neighborhood are you in? I'm currently uh, on the Upper East Side. Cool. Okay. Just so I can avoid whatever explosions, fires. <laughs> no, this is all normal. The, the joy is I live near a dog park, so you might also hear the dogs howling along with the sirens. It's just the music of the city. <laughs> I, I'm with you. I, I'm talking to you from Brooklyn, and the same thing happens to me. Uh, I've closed the, the windows as best I can, but you mm -hmm. know, when you live in the city or Brooklyn, see, first of all, if you're not from here, you Brooklyn is in fact New York City, but nobody in mm -hmm. New York calls Brooklyn the city. It's Brooklyn <laughs> and Manhattan's the city. It's just the way people talk about it, right, Sarah? I mean, just yeah. so I want to be clear for people. Um, mm -hmm. I love that you talk about grit, determination, but I also find the best writers are great readers, especially from Definitely. a young age. Mm -hmm. so yeah, you I think one of the biggest hang-ups that I have is when people say nothing like this has ever been written I wrote something completely new <laughs> and I say well I don't know if that's a good thing you know there might be a reason <laughs> there might be a reason or maybe you just haven't done your research because there are so many talented incredible authors you know we have hundreds thousands of years of authors and if you think you're in reinventing the wheel so to speak why <laughs> i have a story about a guy and an angel takes him down to hell and he discovers the levels of hell never been done before <laughs> except there's a guy named dante you might want to look yeah. him up anyway sorry yeah in inside terrible literature joke which is just what the people want to hear on the podcast did you ever run into ben dreyer over at uh, random penguin uh he is Ooh. a copy guy okay so he wrote a great book called Ben Dreyer's English. I've had him on the show, best-selling author. Mm -hmm, he has mm -hmm. a fun game, which I, Ben, if you're hearing this, um, I get a percentage of this, right? He's got a game called <laughs> STET, S-T-E-T. People who mm -hmm. write or edit know what STET means. It's when you do a correction and then you undo your correction, you write STET, mm -hmm. meaning don't change this. Is that accurate, Sarah? I don't want to be. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes, you know, we'll stat other people, which is always <laughs> not meant as a power move, but it feels like it, you know. <laughs> oh, my God, Undo. that's so great. I, lo I love that. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Anyway, um, so he's got this game where they're like trivial pursuit type cards and they show a sentence and then they mm -hmm. give several editing ideas you have to choose. Or it could be none mm -hmm. of those. It could be stat. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's a fun game for people like you and me. It may not be for everybody, but I, <laughs> you know, um, I don't know why. I just when you when you're talking about Penguin Random House, 
which boys and girls, if you're ever emailing someone there, it is the longest email domain <laughs> to write out. Uh, trust me. Uh, but at some point, you found your way to HarperCollins. Now, what I love about HarperCollins, I have two things I love about HarperCollins. One is I made my best deals as an agent with Avon, which is an imprint there. I uh, haven't been an agent in a while and the checks still keep happening because we hit the times list with that author and it turned out great. Oh, you, thank you. If you're at the office, which is at Broadway and Fulton, above an anthropology, and there's <laughs> security, so you can't just randomly come in there. People. It is one of the nicest offices I have ever been in. They rebuilt that building and the entryway is like this giant Am, am I right, Sarah? Or do you, you know mm -hmm. that place? Oh, it's um, beautiful. I miss it so much. <laughs> me too. I used to work literally around the corner. Uh, my office was at 222 Broadway. It's now mm -hmm. on Wall Street. I moved. And then, of course, I don't really go into my office because yeah. I don't, nobody does. Um, but back to reality, what I was asking, sorry, is how do you, it's not like baseball. You didn't get traded from Penguin Random House to HarperCollins. No, um, but something happened. Can you, can you talk about it or was it just the right move sure. at the right time? Or? Yeah. I mean, certainly a combination of things. I think part of what happened while I was at Penguin, which was so exciting to be a part of is the big rebrand and everything shifted. And I've touched on this a bit. I worked on almost everything that, that came out of that imprint. And I got to work with so many incredible different editors as an assistant, which was such an amazing step for my career, you know, to work with, you know, five to 10 different editors within a week and, and assist on all their projects. I learned so many amazing things about how people work, the the tricks of the trade, but also getting to know people, which was amazing. And, and everyone over there had their own special talents and it was a large team. Oh no, the sirens are happening again. Uh, but <laughs> it was, it was such a pleasure to be there. And after, you know, almost four years there, I realized I hadn't really found my niche. I hadn't found somewhere. I hadn't found a path for me forward. And I began to realize that I needed somewhere with a little bit more stability where I could really hunker down and work on one type of book with one manager and have that sort of guiding force again that I loved so much from the beginning of my career before we sort of shifted around a lot. Um, and there was an opening on Catherine Teagan books working for Catherine. And she's again, so incredible and so knowledgeable about everything. And I, I just wanted to learn from her. And so interviewing with her was actually <laughs> such a pleasure. You know, you get so nervous for these because you're sitting down trying to, to pitch yourself to someone. And our conversation from the get-go was just so great about not only what I could bring to the team, but how I could fit into the team and, and be a part of such an incredible you know, Catherine Teagan books hasn't been around forever, but the publishing list is so impressive and the authors and just the, the raw talent. Um, and I was, I was just thrilled to get that job offer. And while I was sorry to say goodbye to the amazing team over at Penguin Workshop, I realized that it was the way to move my career forward and have that smaller team and, and more consistent work that I was looking for. I think that people who don't know publishing don't realize that this is a thing that happens. It's very rare that an editor stays with the same publishing house for 20 or 30 years. It can happen if they are given their own imprint or they move up various management rungs. 
But I think even now more than ever, because of the volatility of the publishing industry, it's just not something that we're seeing. And I think it was, not that you need me to tell you this, I think it was brilliant to go into some place where you can work directly for someone who has their own imprint. Um, can you explain, because people don't want me talking to them so much, can you explain <laughs> the whole notion of imprints in giant publishing houses? Sure. So I, I have another extended metaphor for this one, too. Um, I like to think about imprints as wings in a museum. So the publishing house is the museum. The museum is looking for the best art, but it's going to fit in different wings. You know, you're not going to put a Monet in with, you know, the sort of modern art wing. You're going to put it with the Impressionism. And so when we talk about fit and imprints, you're, you're really curating a collection. And certainly there's some flexibility there. You know, at Catherine Teagan Books, we always say we look for books with literary merit, but that are highly commercial, which just means, you know, we, ha we have a broad, th that's everything, you know. <laughs> everything well, I, but I think it's, I'm sorry, <laughs> but, I, you know, when I was a literary agent, I only did genre fiction because mm -hmm. the other thing you're talking about, uh, there's this highfalutin term called literary fiction. And people mm -hmm. are like, what is that? Well, it's whatever's not included in genre to many people. So it's not a mystery. It's not a romance. It's not a horror. Mm -hmm. It's not a sci-fi. It's not a fantasy. So if we can't put it in one of those, we just call it literary fiction. And then it could be either very commercial literary fiction where it's like, oh, I really got into the story and I can actually see this as a movie, you know? And then there's the more highfalutin literary fiction, which is like in 20 or 30 years, maybe they'll teach it. But right now there's a guy and his dog staring at the ocean, thinking back to a trip in Italy. <laughs> and I have no idea what's happening because halfway through, it turns into an allegorical poem. And I'm like, what is happening? And they're like, see, <laughs> see? And I'm like, I don't see. Uh, it's like, am I right? And, and the problem with literary fiction, I couldn't represent it because I was always afraid that if I liked it, it wasn't pretentious enough or it was really genre fiction in disguise. So anyway, I, I think that what's great about what you're talking about is you are one of those people who gets that it isn't genre, but it's absolutely commercial, saleable. And you have, you know, in the record business, we say people have good ears. They can go to a concert, they can listen to 30 bands and they'll know the one that's gonna be the one they should sign because they have ears to hear what's good. And you have good ears for publishing or good eyes, I don't know. Uh, what, what do you think of that analogy or metaphor? Yeah, that's certainly the goal. And I mean, a lot of what I'm learning now um, as you know, someone who's starting out is, is developing my ears, as you said, and trying to follow along as, you know, we're a small team, there are like five of us, but learning from the others on my team to see, okay, well, what did you see in this? What does it look like in its raw stage? What are you seeing that I can later find? And I don't want to say diamond in the rough because it first drafts are not that rough by the time we're getting them. Um, but it's more about what can I do for this book? How can I bring this to, to readers? And, and learning from my team about you know, finding those ears is, is so much of what I'm trying to do right now. Definitely. Wow. Well, I, I think it's very exciting that you look, it's not cool for me to ask your age or even when you graduated, but you clearly are not in this business a long time. Can I ask how long you've been in the editorial world? 
It's actually been over six years. I've had a little bit of a, a, a longer time as an assistant than most people. And I think I think soon um, I, I should be making it to associate. It's a, it's a little early to say, um, but I'm... <laughs> Well, one of the reasons I wanted you on is for people to see, first of all, that uh, young women have a place in this industry. In fact, the reality is publishing is very women driven, always has yes. been, uh, but it's not been heralded uh, as much as I think it should be, number one. Number two, um, you're the future of this business. Um, and I'm not trying to shine you up. It's just the reality. If you want to stay in publishing for the next 10, 20 years, you are going to be one of the people that makes decisions that has a tremendous impact on this part of what I consider showbiz that people love. That's formative and really drives people in terms of their creativity, but also even as simple as entertaining them through tough times. I mean, God knows books have gotten a lot of people through this year. Uh, it's not just Netflix. Um, or, you know, bread meat. But there's another mm -hmm. aspect of this, first of all, that you've accomplished a lot in a short period of time, in my opinion. But at the same time, this is not the only thing you do. And this is where I whip out the surprise, chung chung, she's really left-handed. <laughs> or, you know. I uh, actually am. <laughs> me too. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, in um, Princess Bride, right? You know, imagine mm -hmm. you use my other hand. So anyway, um, you are a published author and, and that is not easy either. And I want to talk about that. So um, do you use your same name for your published work? I do. That's great. And what is it that you have uh, that you write and that you've had published? So I, I write a lot in my spare time, a lot of different things. And I have certainly not published everything that I've written um, but I've been lucky enough to be published for a few of the picture books that I've written while I was back at Penguin. And some of those are very fun Power Rangers 8 by 8s For those who don't know, that's they're licensed books. They're retellings of the episodes and they're low price point, very accessible. And it's about getting kids to get excited about reading, which I think is incredibly important. Um, and I also wrote a leveled reader, which is a program that many publishing houses have. Uh, Penguin, it's Penguin Young Readers, and they help kids learn how to read by using different vocabulary words, sentence structures, and plot structures to to teach you know kids how to pick up a book and read by themselves. I want so to back up. A, I'm sorry. I want to back up a second because there is some amazing, amazing stuff that you're talking about that impacted me. Now, again, I'm significantly older than you. But I was not a big reader when I first started out. My brother and sister had all these, you know, Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew stuff. Mm -hmm. Nothing interested me. And then one day I picked up, and I don't know how we had it. It was a novelization of the movie A Hard Day's Night. It literally was. And for people who don't know, they used to. And I don't know if they really do this anymore. People would be hired to write the novel version of movies. And I still so, do that with okay. some, yeah. Okay. And it is... Um, how put it? it is a great opportunity for a writer, I think, because you have to, it, it's an incredibly different skill set to take this film, which is obviously a visual medium, and turn it into a book. And I remember eating that book. I mean, like, I just, mm -hmm. I read the hell out of that book um, because I love the Beatles and I love the movie. Um, 
but I don't even know if I saw the movie at that point. I might've read the book first. Uh, it was never a book. It was always a movie first. And then I got my hand on some, I don't know if I'd call it novelizations, but stories of the Partridge family. For those of you not as old as me, there was a TV show starring Shirley Jones, who was an incredible musical actress who was in movies and Broadway. And she was the mom of this musical family. And I'm sure everybody knows, but if you don't, you can look up the rest. It is quite the 60s, 70s phenomenon. But in any event, I read those and just, again, swallowed them whole. And that really, more than anything else, got me on my journey as a reader. So I love that you did these Power Ranger books. And I love this whole idea of these books. And I didn't know that was a thing. And I'm not a parent. And the Power Rangers were after me. I mean, I'm aware of them as a thing, as a cultural thing. But uh, I had no idea there were these books. That's amazing. And that's really cool yeah. part of that. Um, and these leveled readers, that sounds really fantastic. How unusual is it that someone who does what you do as your day job does this other publishing work where you write? I don't know many people that do that. Do you know people? I just am out of the loop. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fairly common. Some of these opportunities I certainly got because I knew people and because I was in the office. And when you need someone who can turn around a book, you know, in, in these scenarios, we were working on very tight deadlines. You're working again with the NDAs and the special relationships with the studios. And it's, it becomes, we need someone we can trust who can write very quickly and can turn this around. And it was, it was easy to raise my hand and say, I'd love to have this opportunity. I do write. I, you know, I'd be thrilled. Um, and then after I had done that a few times, it became easier to say, hey, I think I have this, this opportunity here. And again, a lot of my mentors in the business also write, um, you know, all the amazing women that I've listed do write in their spare time, you know, Bonnie and Jane and Catherine do have amazing credits to their name and bylines on things. So I think part of working with them was also learning a little bit about how to, how to balance the two and I had always wanted to be published. So seeing my name on a book was thrilling. Um, and even if it was something where I did not invent the Power Rangers, uh, but getting to have a piece of their world, you know, and, and be a part of that was just incredible. Is that still, I, there are some things that the thrill doesn't wear off for me. Uh, is that still one of those things where you see your name on something uh, that you're like, that's really cool. Oh, definitely. I mean, this is <laughs> a little narcissistic, but the other day I was making my website and I wanted to link to, you know, booksellers and I ended up on Amazon and I saw the reviews for one of the Power Rangers books and someone said, you know, my son loves these. It's it's great to have a book that he enjoys and that he can sit with and read over and over again. And I thought, hey, you know, I had a part in that. I, I got to to help that kid have a, a great read. I think that is not narcissism. I think that it's very interesting. I don't think it's just women who have this. I, I think men do too, but we hear a lot about it. When this sort of double-edged negative sword of you have to blow your own horn to make it in this world. Don't be shy about telling people about your accomplishments. Oh my God, you're you're being too much of a show off you know, stop pushing yourself. Mm. No, look, you have a website. You're, anybody in publishing would say, if you didn't have a website, they'd be 
what are you kidding me? And actually in anything, yeah. if you don't have a website, you're like, you're not even in the 20th, <laughs> 20th century. So, you know, and then to put reviews on it. I mean, I have, I have client statements on my law website. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I even reference my law firm's website on my podcast website. So that's, and these are real accomplishments. Um, we've lived through four years of a narcissist as a president. And um, I think anyone with a brain can see that's not an affliction under which you suffer. You're just doing <laughs> what you should be doing, which is telling people, I did this thing. And that's pretty cool. You should check out what I did. And that's why you're on this podcast. Well, certainly one of the reasons. So, well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, yeah. part of the other interesting experience of writing and being vulnerable in that way is I do end up chatting with other people who write. And I think a lot of us share this imposter syndrome. And there is this moment where you think, oh, my goodness, I've tricked everyone. You know, I I was so thrilled uh, a couple of weeks ago. I signed with an agent, um, which I'm so excited about. Uh, I'll be with uh, Jennifer March Soloway, who's incredible. And I had this moment of, oh my goodness, I, I tricked her. My book isn't good. I uh, bamboozled, you know, <laughs> what have I done to, to convince her that I can actually write? Um, and it's funny because my sister also writes. We, we grew up writing together and reading together. She's three years older and she signed with an agent this past month also. And the two of us sat and we just went, oh my goodness, we tricked them. <laughs> well, you're just <laughs> the new... Both- you know, the new Bronte sisters is what's going on. Yeah, I I wrote a picture book about a little boat, well, a big boat, uh, and my sister wrote a horror book uh, about murderous plants. Um, so they're a little bit different. <laughs> what what is it? A real horror book or is it a comic horror book? Her book, the murderous plants. Um, I, oh, I would say real. It's okay. she's been playing with you know, is it more psychological thriller and and teasing uh. with that. Um, and I had the pleasure of kind of editing it a little bit as more of a sister than mm-hmm. an actual editor. Um, but it was terrifying and I can't wait for it to go on sub soon and terrify some more people. I love that you are happy for your sister. And I think yeah. you have what I would consider a healthy relationship with your sister. Would you say that's accurate? Oh, definitely. Yeah, we're very close. Uh, we we text each other all the time about, you know, my book's out on sub and hers is about to be. And it's, you know, what meme can we send each other? A picture of a dog to say, hey, like, things are going to be okay. Don't stress about it. Uh, and it's, it's great to have someone who has my back and knows what it feels like because it is a scary experience. It is very vulnerable and, and strange and you're putting yourself out there in a, in a different way. Just to explain to people when you have an agent and sometimes even if you don't, um, when your book is ready, it's been properly edited and it's really the, in the best shape it can be your agent or you then submit it to editors and publishing houses. And depending on what it is, it goes to various different places. So hopefully you have an agent who's researched, who is buying this type of thing or who is due to buy this type of thing or who they know who would like this type of thing. And then your book is considered out on submission or as we say in the biz, out on sub. So I just want to be clear because not everybody will know. Um, And for those of you who do know, thank you for your patience. And if you think I over-explain things, go to isthatreallylegal.com and there's a place to leave comments and you can tell me I'm (laughs) over-explaining. no, there's a lot of lingo. There, there really is. And um, 
I think that the lingo, like any other lingo in any other business, serves to help us in some ways and is not helpful in other ways. And you just find your way through it. Getting an agent. Now, again, because you were an editor and you meet, I mean, by definition, you get agented submissions all the time, meaning agents send emails to Sarah um, with an attachment of here's the full manuscript, a little bit of information about it, hopefully a synopsis, uh, whatever else you might ask agents to do. It's been a while, so I can't remember everything. But <laughs> And then what the agent does is sends it and then starts saying a prayer to whichever deities, you know, they do that sort of thing. <laughs> and, and then, you know, hopefully they diary it ahead a month, two months, depending on their relationship with Sarah and go, hey, have you had a chance to look at that thing? <laughs> or I was wondering if you were available for a coffee and we can chat over coffee. And then all of a sudden I go, oh yeah, by the way, before I go, did you get a chance to look at that thing? Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> this is all familiar to you, right, Sarah? This is not unusual. Yep. Okay, yeah, I did live that life at one time. But in any event, um, but before all of that, you, uh, so as a result of that, you got to meet a bunch of agents. And you I could, did. And you could tell immediately it's just like dating, right? And I'm not going to get too personal. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, you immediately know, it's not like this is a bad person or a good person. It's just like, oh yeah, there's no chemistry. Here. Like they may have great books or whatever, but like, I am never going to spend more than five minutes talking to this person. Whereas another person might be like, I love hanging on the phone with this agent. And I might even daydream about them being my agent someday. Like, <laughs> is, there, is there stuff like that that happens? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most interesting things for me getting to know agents, and again, I'm starting out, I'm I'm still getting to know people. Um, well, you say that, but you've already been in the business for quite a few years, like six I years. have, I have, you know, there's, so, there's an interesting point that happens two or three years in when you start acquiring, so you, you buy your first project, and I've bought a handful of projects, and I, I would love to build my list more, um, so I haven't had that many deals with agents, but I've had a lot of phone calls with agents. And what I've learned is part of what's fascinating is an agent will say, oh, you know, I'm just really craving a story about cats. And I'll say, you know, I'm really a dog person. Um, and that's okay. Uh, I'll just, you know, keep that in mind when they send me an email, maybe it's not exactly the same taste as mine. That doesn't mean it's not good. That doesn't mean it, it might not it, it could still work really well at my imprint. It, it might be a huge book, um, but am I the right editor for that? Maybe not. Um, I'm okay with cats. I, that was just an uh, example. Yeah, Nothing please don't cats. write, Sarah. Come on. <laughs> All you cat people, calm down. The um, hundred thousand cat people just ran to their laptop, and I'm saying, calm down. Don't do not attack Sarah. She's a good person. I happen to love all the animals, but we we lost our cat a couple of years ago and we just renovated our apartment and have literally brand new furniture. And it's just not a time to bring a cat in to destroy it. And we travel when we can, when there's not a pandemic. So dogs are kind of out of the picture for us. But our building has the best dogs and we have relationships mm-hmm. more with the dogs in the building than the people and their children. <laughs> We're happy to see that's the real. dogs. Everybody else is like, oh, okay, I guess that's fine. You can hold the elevator for you. We're really holding it for your dog. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. That's definitely the... <laughs> Do you have that? Ex- that's a very New York thing too, right? Mm-hmm. Holding the elevator definitely. for 
Dude. If I had an elevator, yeah, oh. I'm gonna walk up. Um, ah, but gotcha. I do, I do recognize the dogs more than the people. That's a problem. Uh, I know their names. I don't know the people's names. No. Right, and that's fine because um, let's face it, the people <laughs> you can't touch the people, but you can touch the dogs. I mean, it, well, it's it's definitely more appropriate to touch the dogs than the people. If you're listening at home, this has gotten weird. I apologize. We're just gonna move past this. <laughs> Um, so how do people find you, Sarah, if they want to find you and for what purpose? I mean, they can find you as an editor. I don't know if you're Mm -hmm. taking submissions from people other than agents. Is that a thing you do or no? Not right now. Um, I, I'll, you know, I've had the pleasure of speaking at a few conferences and sometimes I'll open to, you know, submissions from conferences. But aside from that, just agented right now, um, I do have a very long to, to be red pile and my TBR is, a is wild right now. Uh, uh, it's I, just the vibe. But, what, about, um, what about following you on social media? Because we're sure. going to move some product here. I love to move people's product <laughs> on my podcast. Yes. And you will sell your book to some major publisher. And when you do, they need to buy it. So how do people follow you on various social media? Sure. So my Twitter is at Sarah Sean. That's S-C-H-O-N. Uh, there's no H in my name if you're looking for me. And I do have a website. It's Sarah Schoenfeld Books, probably easiest to go through uh, my Twitter. It's linked there. And that'll give you information about what I do as an author, what I do as an editor, and where to find me if you want to hire me to do some freelance editing, which is through Readsy. I will tell people my experience on social media is Facebook is for friends and family. And there's I don't really experience a lot of book world on Facebook. I could be wrong. If it works for you, great. Instagram just doesn't feel, I'm on there for the podcast. It's just, it's just not the vibe. But Twitter, literary Twitter is and has been a thing for a while. And I think it continues to be with lots of opportunities to do things. There's sometimes pitching sessions. I used to do a um, query, uh, I would explain 10 queries that I got and why they didn't work um, Mm -hmm. in a humorous but not degrading way. I was not mean. Um, I also was anonymous. I never said anything that could track someone to their query or somebody's query. But, you know, Mm -hmm. things like, you know, uh, please add, you know, give me a synopsis. Writing in the submission that you hate synopses Mm -hmm is not following my query <laughs> Oh, rules. no. Stuff like that. Oh, you'd be amazed yeah. or maybe you wouldn't be amazed. Um, but would you agree there's a lot of good literary? And plus, you meet people like you and agents and editors and authors. Yeah. And Has that been your experience on Twitter? Oh, I love Twitter. There's such a great community there. And it's one of the things where when I do feel insecure or a little worried about, you know, what silly thing am I writing about today? Um connecting with people online has just been so it's it's sad that we can't meet in person but twitter has been so uplifting and i I do think there is a tendency on sometimes on twitter to get a little negative and i know that there are a lot of things to be upset about um but i do think there are great people on twitter too who are you know uplifting the stories they love and being positive and i think it's about finding the people who I mean, you don't have to be positive all the time, certainly, but finding the people who are loving and supportive and can really make you a better writer and a better person. I mean, it's a microcosm of society. First of all, the political stuff is just exhausting, even whatever side you're on. 
it's just exhausting and it had been for years. But the literary Twitter is like, look, there's people who are mad at what they call the gatekeepers, people like you and me, or I used to be. Um, and as a lawyer, I still do deals for people, but I do it differently where I assist them in deals or I undo deals. Um, there's lots of, you know, things that happen um, in publishing as well as other aspects. And some people view us as bad and elitist and whatever, and they're going to have that opinion, but that's fine. Yeah, perfect. No, but, but, and also, you know, a lot of people form opinions without having any experience or knowledge. That, that's one of the things about Twitter is, you know, anybody can get a username, log on, and there you go. Yes. Um, but for the most part, I, like you, have met some amazing people. I've either kept up with people that I've met in real life, and then I just don't get to see them, but I see them on Twitter, especially in the literary world, or just mm-hmm. other people that I may never meet. Um, and you just, they're just wonderful people in literary or otherwise. And I'm glad that you and I met on Twitter. Yeah, Is there, uh, we're, we're kind of running out of time here. Um, this was like, for me, one of the easiest, most fun conversations. I hope you feel the same. Oh yeah, this uh, was a pleasure. And um, what a see, I I got her to say that. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> I'm so needy. <laughs> um, my wife would say, "I'm so needy." Why, why do you have to ask? That? Anyway, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you're like, you know what, Eric? Before I leave, we need to talk about this. Mm. And it's okay One if there isn't. That... Yeah. Sure. Um, I'm currently working on a presentation uh, for a conference that I'm speaking at about rejections. And I do want to stress that there is a lot of rejection in this industry. And it's easy to, again, feel that imposter syndrome and feel like you're not good enough. But I do want to stress that every rejection isn't about you. It's not about your book. It's about the editor or the agent and how they can sell your book. And could be a question of marketability, marketability, or it could be a question of that particular relationship. So I, I hope that people take some pride in their rejections and see them as either ways to, to move them forward, things to improve on, or just, you know, hope for the future. So, so please keep trying everyone out there who, who wants to be published. I do think that, like I said, grit is so much a part of this industry and dedication and knowing that you, your story does have value and your story is important and there is a reader out there who's going to love it. So so please stick with it. And even if I'm the one sending the rejection, know that it's with love and with regret that I can't be the right champion for this project. Oh, Sarah, that's such a great thing to end on. I had more to say, but you know what? I can't. I'm not going to add to it. You, <laughs> it was perfect. Um, thank you. Sarah Schoenfeld, thank you so much for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. It has been a pleasure and a delight. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it. Another great interview. Look, at the end of May, it'll really have been a year that I've been doing this podcast. And I have to tell you, it went from being just a legal podcast to being an opportunity to speak with creatives. And I've been enjoying myself. What about you? Have you had a good year? Let me know. Have you enjoyed this podcast for a year? Let me know. Um, Go to isthatreallylegal.com and communicate with me. There's a space to do that on the website. You can subscribe to this podcast. You can rate this podcast. Um, Please do those things. 
and please take care of yourself. Let me know how your year has been, regardless of the podcast. What have you learned? What have you endured? What have you survived? What are your joys? What are your dreams for the upcoming year? You know, I've been seeing people in person without masks. I've hugged some friends. We're fully vaccinated. I want to throw that out there, by the way. Did you get your vaccine? Could you just do it, please? Did you do it? Can you tell people so they feel safe? Wear a mask. Do what you got to do. Come back. Keep listening. And uh, I look forward to talking with you soon. Have a great one. Bye-bye.